The word says we're called to make disciples. We're growing in the word of God. Jesus Christ was sent to be our saviour. This is the Bromley Town Church Podcast. We pray God speaks to you through this message, blessing you as you live out God's word. Stream or download other sermon podcasts via the Bromley Town Church website or by using the SoundCloud app. Head over to bromleytownchurch.com. Today, we're looking at the second part of Romans. Okay, last week I did mention the fact that Romans isn't the easiest of books. I'm going to actually just dig on that a little bit deeper. Romans is a hard book to get into, okay? If you've read Romans, because you read all these theologians, go, they go mad for it. They tell you, oh, this is the greatest thing. So you think, like, great, I'm going to get into Romans. I'm going to read it because the theologians are telling me how good it is and how important it is. So there I am reading it, and I'm thinking, I can't quite understand what you're on about, Paul. And I know there's a few good bits, so you read a good bit, and you understand that, and then you read a lot of, okay, I'll just pass over that, and then I get to another bit. That's what I find Romans is like. So what we're trying to do is not, we're trying to get understanding from it. And today, I'm going to repeat, in one sense, a little bit of what I did last week, but it's because I'm trying to get understanding of it, and I'm receiving understanding of what happened to Paul. So first of all, I'm just going to look at Israel. Just going to go right back over the Bible and look at the start of Israel. There was this man, Abraham, who was actually worshipping idols in a foreign nation, and God comes and meets with him and says to him, I want you to get out of this place. I want you to come to the place where I have appointed you to go to. So there's the call of this man, Abraham, and he comes out of his previous country, and he comes all the way into what is now modern-day Israel. He comes on that whole journey. And God speaks to him and says, listen, to you, because he was married, married to Sarah. Sarah was barren. She couldn't have children. She wanted to have children, but God suddenly says to Abraham, you are going to have a son. Wow, this is exciting. This is good news. And you can imagine he went home and told Sarah, and they chatted and probably did other things as well, because they wanted to have a baby. But nothing happened. And this went on for some time, and it's almost a bit like, God, are you real? Are you sure? Isn't that the sort of thing that we often say to God? God, are you sure? Nothing seems to be happening here. And as the years went past, there were pressures. There were definite pressures as far as that's concerned. And you know what it is? When we're under pressure, we try to sort things out. And so guess what? Abraham tried to sort things out. Sarah tried to sort things out. Sarah had an Egyptian slave. And so she said, listen, you sleep with my Egyptian slave, and we can have children through that method. There's a method there that's organized by man. And so indeed, they did have a son, Ishmael. Ishmael was not the child of promise. He was the child that was orchestrated out of man trying to do it. The issue that we have in our lives that we, that I am dealing with, is I try to sort things out. And when we try to sort things out with our minds, we often don't get it right. I'm not saying it's not always the case, but there's often the case when we fail. This was the situation here. But I'm glad to say that Abraham... God met with him again and says, no, you are going to have a son. It's going to come through the right channels. Your wife. But he's now saying this to a woman who's well past having children. But God, when he promises, he delivers. Because he cannot break his word. And so this woman, Sarah, she has a child. Isaac is born. Isaac is the child of promise. 
the one that God promised that would come, and he is there. And it's through Isaac, because then Isaac, he gets married to Rebekah, and they have children. Even though at first Rebekah couldn't have children, Isaac prayed, and she was able to have children, and she has twins, Esau and Jacob. Now, it's usual that the firstborn is the important one, but God said, or it was spoken, that actually it's going to be, rather than the firstborn going to serve the younger, the younger going to serve the firstborn, it's going to be the other way around. And indeed, we see Jacob rising up. Lots of problems between the brothers. I'm going to skip over a little bit. Jacob goes off to his uncles, and he meets a girl there who he thinks is wonderful, but actually his father-in-law gives his older sister to him on his marriage night. And so he ends up with two wives, Leah and Rebekah. And there's lots of children that are produced, although Rebecca can't have, Rachel can't have children, as it turns out. And so there's children through the, the other wife, there's children through the servants of the two girls. Eventually, there's actually 12 boys that are born. And this is the beginning of the nation of Israel. And we know that one of those is Joseph. Long story, I'm going to move on. They end up in Egypt. This whole family end up in Egypt because there's famine in Israel. And in Egypt, eventually they come under the bondage of the Egyptians and the Egyptians oppress them. But God is calling this people to be his people and God is not going to allow his people to remain in bondage. And so God sends a deliverer in the form of Moses who goes to take the people of Israel out of captivity. And through signs and wonders, God releases that nation from captivity in, in Egypt and brings them into the land that he had promised ages ago to, uh, to Abraham. He brings them into that land. In fact, it's not Moses that takes them in, it's uh, Joshua who takes them in. They take possession of the land. And now they are in the promised land that God has called them to. That's where they are. But in fact, on the way, sorry, I should have said this, on the way out of Egypt, there was a very, very, very important connection with God himself, Mount Sinai. At Mount Sinai, they came to this mountain, and then one morning, this mountain is covered with fire and smoke, and there's noise, and God himself comes down to his people, and God gives them his laws, which we know as the Ten Commandments. What a significant people. They're people who have been established, are people who are in captivity. They've come out of captivity, and now they have received instructions from God himself who came to meet with them. In fact, they were so frightened of meeting with God, they said, listen, Moses, you deal with God, and we'll deal with you. But God had come, and he had made his laws, his commands known to this nation. What a special nation. They then go and inhabit their promised land. They take that over. Joshua leads them in that. And now in their promised land, they are a people who have God come and dwell among them. They build a temple for God to be among his people to show how, them how to live. And they have got laws to live by. They've got actually, what, 613 laws it is to live by. Quite a few. And as time goes on, they're working out exactly how should we work on these laws. And so they have scribes and they have specialists in the law who come to interpret those laws. So they've got 613 laws, and then they've probably got, goodness knows how many thousand interpretations of those laws, and the people of Israel are supposed to live by all of that. And by the time we come to the time of Jesus, then we're seeing there's problems in the land. 
In fact, before the time of Jesus. Before the time of Jesus, they'd been trying to live according to these laws, and they'd failed. They'd failed so badly that God says, because of your failure, I'm going to uproot you from everything that I've given you, and you're going to go to Babylon. So they actually get uprooted. They take, get taken captive as a nation. But eventually they come back. And when they come back, they say, okay, it's a second time. We're going to try and get it right this time. We're going to live right. We're going to establish a new temple. We're going to live right. That's what they were doing. And that happened all the time up to Jesus. But then Jesus comes. Now, don't forget, every Jew didn't understand that he was the Messiah. It's just this guy who comes amongst them. At the time of Jesus, you've got the people of Israel seeking to live life God's way according to his rules and regulations. As I say, Jesus, yes, he was the Messiah. He did come according to the promises of the Old Testament, but we're not going to dwell on that. We're just looking at what the Israelite nation, the Jews themselves, and how they were trying to live. Now, all of this background paints the picture for our man Paul. Because Paul comes into Israel, he's born an Israeli, he's born a Jew, he's following the Jewish laws, he is living according to the laws, the laws given by God to the nation that was established by God. The laws that were given specially, those Ten Commandments, they were delivered by God to his people so that you can live by these. This is how I want you to live. And Paul has taken all that on board, he's a Jew. He wants to stand up for the Jews. He believes in God. He believes in the law. He follows the law. And so that is how he is living his life. He's living his life the way he's been told to. And he's doing a very good job of it. Let me just read again what Paul declares of himself. Philippians 3 verses 4 and 6. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day as you should as a Jew, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, I was persecuting those strange people who were following this man, Jesus. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. So here we have this man, Paul, and his position is that he's just living according to the way that God said he should live. Now, let me jump now and jump into to Luke 18, because I just want to give us a, a parable that Jesus taught. Luke 18, verses 10 to 14. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God... I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is the message that Jesus had been preaching before Paul came. The message was, look, actually that attitude, Paul, that you've got, that way that you've got, whereas in we are right, we've got it all sewn up, we've got it all correct, we're following the rules, we're doing all the right things. That attitude, which has brought about this self-righteousness in you, 
is not the right way. And Jesus, in his story, he compares it between two people. The Pharisee, the guy who's supposed to be living correctly, and a, a, a tax collector. I mean, a tax collector, this is like, this is the rubbish of the earth. And yet Jesus is saying, oh, this guy who's saying to God, have mercy upon me. I'm a sinner. He's the one who gets justified before God. So I just want you to grasp how Paul viewed himself. This is what I'm trying to get across to you. How did Paul view himself? And this is all before the Damascus Road revelation. Okay, Paul viewed himself as a religious person who was right, who was living right before God. Therefore, he had a good relationship with God. He had received the law that God had given. And not just received it, he had kept it. And therefore, he was righteous before God. But you know what? Later on, if you read on in Romans, Paul actually wrote this. Romans 9, verses 31 to 32. He says, But the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. And you know what? There's a tendency for us to come to this same position. You know, we can have that thought in our minds, thank you, I'm not like these other people out there. They're doing their shopping out there. But we're in church. Phew. Thankfully, we're not like them. We're good people because we're in church. Thank you, God, that you've saved me. Thank you, God, that I can actually come to church. You know, and as soon as we leave here, we go off and live the life that we want to live. And there is a sense in which that's quite like what Paul was like. There's a sense in which we can get locked into our self-righteousness. I've done the right thing. I've done it in the right way. But we need to connect with God and we need to have a relationship with God. Paul, at this stage, was walking in a certain amount of blindness and certainly self-righteousness. Blindness because he thought he could see, but in actual truth... He couldn't see, therefore he was blind. Self-righteousness, because he was thinking that he was made right by what he was doing, but it tended to be a works-based system, and it was reliant on Paul's own ability, Paul's own strength, rather than God's. But this is why the Damascus Road revelation was so amazing for Paul. Because truly... It wasn't just that he got blinded by this bright light or that Jesus spoke to him. It's that a complete transformation was taking place within his mindset, within his ways, within his thinking. All about him was being shifted. And that's why Paul said this in Philippians 3 verses 7 to 9. Whatever were gains to me, and he's talking about this life of, of religiousness, if you like. Whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. And it's now from that awakened position where Paul has now seen that the only person who can save me is Jesus. 
The only person I'm living for is Jesus. Yes, there are rules and regulations that have been given to us from God in his word. And yes, we need to take note of them. But first and foremost, it's not about a religion. It's about a relationship with a living person. It was transformational. Completely transformational. He had literally come from the dimension of being a super Jew, if you like, all the way now to being a person who was a follower of the Jesus Christ, a person of the way, a Christian. He had made that complete transformation. And that's why he goes on to say excitedly in Romans 1, 16 and 17, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew and then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith, first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now, what I'm trying to do is to come to this point so that we've all got an understanding of what was going on with Paul. The transformation that is taking place. The previous thinking that he had, the way that he was living, now this encounter with Jesus, and now what he is preaching. Because now he's preaching in Romans this new life. This is the way that we need to live. This is what we need to listen to. There is a righteousness that I tried to achieve by my works, by my actions, by my lifestyle at that time, but that's of no use to me, says Paul. That's as it used to be. I've been there, I've tried that, I've done it. That's what Paul was saying. Now, what only counts now is that I know Jesus. And I receive from him the righteousness that he freely gives. And I take that by faith, by trusting in what he has done for me. And that's why I'm standing before you. That's That's why I'm here now. That's because of what he's done. The promised Messiah, the deliverer, the one whose name is Jesus, he is God's son. He is alive And he does want relationship with me and with you. That's what Paul is saying. So, having tried to just underline that again and make that clear, what we've come to so far in Romans is we've come to that point of Paul making clear of what the gospel is. And now, as he moves on into this letter, he's now trying to address this question. So, that's what the gospel is. Why do we need this gospel? That's what it is. Why do we need it? And that's where we're going to press on. And he starts off by saying, why do we need this gospel? We read now in Romans 1 verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven is what he starts off with. Well, thank you, Paul. You know, we don't mind talking about the love of God because that's much more comfortable for us. It's good to know that God loves us, that he cares for us, that he is for us, that he is the lifter of our head, all of those things. We love compassion, we love the kindness of God, but we don't want to talk so much about the wrath of God. And yet it's the first thing that Paul references. Now we have to be careful because there is an understanding. The wrath of God is not the same as the wrath of man. Or the anger of God, if we want to use that word, is not the same as the anger of man. I think we know what the anger of man is like and we know what it is to be angry. We can boil over. We can suddenly lose it. We can suddenly start shouting all sorts of things that perhaps we shouldn't have shouted. We start getting frustrated. We get short-tempered. God is not like that. So to reference his wrath or his anger, in the same way as we look at human beings, we get the wrong impression. God 
is displeased with what he sees, but it doesn't make him fly off the handle with rage or anything like that. The Greek word that is translated wrath in this particular passage in Romans is not used in many places, but it does appear in Mark 3, verse 5. So let me just read a little bit of Mark 3 to give us a little bit of understanding. Mark 3, chapter 3, verses 3 to 6. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everybody. Then Jesus asked them, Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them, In anger, and this is the word, he looked around at them, Jesus was wrathful, you could say, and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. So in this passage, I'm just trying to give us some understanding about the wrath of God. In this passage, it talks about wrath, or it's translated there as anger, But we see, it's not that Jesus lost it in that situation, far from it. Jesus actually is looking around, he's he's deeply distressed. Oh my goodness, what's the matter with you lot? You're sitting in sin. You're not doing what God wants you to do. What does God want you to do? Is it right to do good or to do evil? Well, it's right to do good. They should have answered that. Is it good to save life or to kill? It's good to save life. They know what the right thing is, but they, we don't know what to do. That's because it's the Sabbath day. We, 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 we. They were bound up within their own self-righteousness and their own ways. They couldn't see what Jesus was getting at. Jesus, the wrath of Jesus, was raised, but it didn't come out as him losing his rag. It came out with him being deeply distressed at what he saw. And that's the same with God's wrath. God reacts in revulsion to sin. That's what it is. The righteousness of God, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. God is reacting because he's looking down at mankind and he is saying, oh my goodness, what on earth are they doing? There's a revulsion that occurs in God to sin. It is his divine pleasure, divine displeasure, I should say, or indignation against sin. We know that God has established a way that we should walk in. And that way is sin-free, if you like. But when we don't walk in that way, when we go against God's chosen way, then we are sinning. And God will and does react to that. And there are consequences to sin. Okay, this is not, whoa, we don't like this. We want to be told that we're good people. We want to be told that really, that God loves us and that he's made a way for us, which is true. But God wants to deal with the issue that surrounds us, that confronts us, that trips us up. In Isaiah 13 verse 11, he says, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their sins. Now let's not forget what Paul is trying to do. Paul is trying, having told us the good news, he's now trying to tell us, why we all need to hear the good news. That's what he's trying to do. And really what he's saying is, we're all sinners. We've all sinned. 
We don't like to think of ourselves as sinners. We like to think of ourselves as quite nice people. You know, you might well say, well, we're all sinners. Really? Is that what you think? Well, I don't know about you, but I know I've done things wrong in the past. And I'm sorry about that, but I'm a Christian now. And so all of that is forgiven. And there is truth in that. But there's also, we can become forgetful of walking in a relationship with Jesus during that time. It's like, I have a ticket, now I can get on with what I want to do. That's not the same as finding out that the only way I could have got that forgiveness is because Jesus died for me. And therefore I owe him my life. That's different. Some people say, well, when they hear we're all sinners, they say, well, I've done a few things wrong. But my next door neighbor, you should see them. For goodness sake, the stuff they're doing, I mean, come on. You could, there is no comparison, okay? When it comes to them, it comes to me. It's like I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a saint. And there's that sense in which we're, we're, we're grading ourselves against others. That's not right. That is self-righteous. And you know what? I find it very easy to be self-righteous. We all find it very easy to be self-righteous. We want to elevate ourselves. We want to make sure that we're not as bad as the other people. But everything that we do that is against God's rules, ways, is sin. If a man knows what is right to do and doesn't do it, for that man it is sin. That's what James tells us. We don't like the word sin. We want to get away from it. Look, basically, I'm a nice person. I don't swear. I don't smoke. I help people out where I can. I'm just a nice person. That's the view of a blinded person who can't see what's going on in their lives. They don't know God. Paul, in Romans 3, says there's no difference between the Jew or the Gentile. There's no difference between whether you're a religious person or whether you're a, a, a non-religious person, whether you're from the Jewish faith, or whether you're a Gentile, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And he goes on to say in Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. The result of sin is that we become spiritually separated from God. Now, the reason that Paul is writing this section from Romans 1 verse 18 through to Romans 3 verse 20 is because he's trying to show to everyone, to the Jews, to the Gentiles, every single person, that they have all sinned and there's no one that's kept God's ways or has upheld God's laws. And we shouldn't be shocked at the thought that God will punish sin because we know that God is a holy God who does not sin. He hates sin. We want our God to be nice, kind, loving, loving to everybody all the time. But the reason for the gospel and the reason that God sent his only son is that he wants to make a righteous people. And he can see that the only way he can do it is by what he does through his son. If we do not realize how sin affects our standing before God, and because of sin that we all face the divine punishment of God, then we're never going to understand the greatness of the gospel. That's the truth. And that is the truth that is affecting me. How much do we really appreciate what Jesus has done? 
Do you remember that story in the Bible where the lady came and she had an alabaster box of perfume and she broke it and she was pouring it over Jesus' feet and this was at a dinner party. And the, the person who was actually holding the, hosting the dinner party was saying, like, what a waste of money. And if Jesus knew what sort of a woman this was who's doing this, oh my goodness, what's the matter with this man? Has he got no discernment? Has he got no appreciation? And Jesus stops in the middle of this situation and says, whoa, 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 when I came into this place, you didn't wash my feet. This woman's washing my feet by weeping, by her tears. She's drying my feet with her hair. She's anointing me with this perfume. What she has done is a beautiful thing, and she's always going to be remembered for it. Because she who has been forgiven much loves much. Why is my heart so cold towards Jesus? I have been forgiven much. Why is it that I find it difficult to say, Jesus, you are everything that I need? Why is it that I find it difficult to serve him and say, Jesus, whatever you want, I'll do it? Because in me is still a hardened core that is still selfish, that is still self-righteous, that still hasn't been able to be fully understand the greatness of what has been given to me. If I can't see my absolute need of God, I will simply live my life the way that I want. And let's not forget, you know, we can come back to this point and say, well, no, no, we're all Christians and, and, and God has come and he's forgiven our sin, so it's all forgotten about. He has forgiven our sin, but he wants us to live how? Righteously for him. He wants us to be people of his kingdom so that his kingdom can be displayed to everybody. That's what he wants. He wants people to look at us and to have a reflection of Jesus. That's what he's wanting. And there's no point in us looking around and saying, well, oh, actually, as I look around here, well, okay, I'm probably a bit better than that person. Probably a bit, you know, I've come to a few more prayer meetings than that person. Suddenly we go straight into self-righteousness. It's so easy for us. What we need is Jesus. We need him in our lives. We need him to help us. Don't forget that Paul was writing this letter to Christians. He was writing it to Christians, to those that had already believed, for those who had already received, and yet he was still bringing this message to them so they could understand about the gospel, but they could see why it was necessary for this gospel to come and for them to all to have an understanding of this. And of course, for Paul himself... He came to this understanding because Jesus, the Messiah, met with him on that Damascus road. It wasn't just a Damascus road experience. It was a transformational experience for Paul. It completely changed him. And it's very much what we need ourselves today. Um, that's the introduction. <laughs> I'm just going to read... From Romans 1, verse 18 to 25, and then we can look at that next week. Paul is trying to show us, as I keep saying to you, why we need the gospel. Romans 1, verse 18 to 25, I'm reading from the Good News translation. God's anger is revealed from heaven against all the sin and evil of the people whose evil ways prevent the truth from being known. God punishes them because what can be known about God is plain to them. For God himself made it plain. Ever since God created the world, his invisible qualities, 
both his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen. They are perceived in, in the things that God has made so that people have no excuse at all. They know God, but they do not give him the honor that belongs to him, nor do they thank him. Instead, their hearts have become completely have become complete nonsense. Their thoughts have become complete nonsense, and their empty minds are filled with darkness. They say they are wise, but they are fools. Instead of worshiping the immortal God, they worship images made to look like mortals or birds or animals or reptiles. And so God has given those people over to do the filthy things their hearts desire. And they do shameful things with each other. They exchange the truth about God for a lie. They worship and serve what God has created instead of the creator himself, who is to be forever praised. Amen. Amen. So we should look at that next week. Thank you for listening to this message from Bromley Town Church. You are always welcome to visit us on a Sunday morning. Or join us again for more messages here online. You can also stay connected with us at www.bromleytownchurch.com.